This is How on Earth, KGA News Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 29th, 2020. I'm Jill Shong. Coming up, we look at the shale revolution, which has transformed the country in ways we could not have predicted a decade ago. How did this happen? And where do experts think the fracking industry might be going? In this two-part series, we explore the shale revolution. And we also consider where Wall Street, which has financed this industry, and environmentalists who are increasingly concerned about climate change and releases in populated areas, have become strange allies. You actually have a coming together almost of environmentalists and investors to say just keep the oil in the ground because there is too much of it. That was an excerpt from Bloomberg's Quick Take, How Fracking Became America's Money Pit. In only one decade, our country's oil output has more than doubled, and we also have an abundant supply of cheap natural gas. Under the Obama administration, the U.S. began exporting oil again in large volumes. The U.S. is not a member of OPEC, of course, but if we were, we would be among its biggest oil exporters. That's how much oil we produce. The shale revolution has been an abrupt role reversal for our country after so many years of being beholden to the Middle East for our oil needs. Colorado has been on the front lines of the shale revolution, especially in Weld County, which is home to 90% of the state's oil production. Colorado's oil and gas industry employs about 90,000 people, directly or indirectly, generates $13.5 billion in economic activity, and provides about a billion dollars in taxes to state and local governments, according to an analysis from CU Boulder. In 2019, Colorado ranked fifth in oil production and eighth in natural gas production among states. How did this come to be? And where are we going? I first got interested in the subject through the air quality concerns in the Front Range. But I quickly learned that in order to understand what was happening with environmental concerns, I needed to learn about the finances of the industry. We never would have had a fracking boom. There wouldn't have been a shale revolution if it hadn't been for ultra-low interest rates in the wake of the financial crisis. So you don't think of these two events, the the rise of American oil and gas and the financial crisis as being related, but they actually are. That was Bethany McLean on CNBC discussing her recent book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. We also talked to Paula Noonan about the oil producers who are drilling in Weld County. Paula Noonan is the owner of Colorado Watch, the state's premier Colorado legislation tracking platform. First, we go back to the very, very beginning with shale rock. Shale rock forms from sediments where there used to be stagnant or slow water, such as swamp or an ocean floor. Shale forms in layers by particles compacting on top of each other. Shale consists of at least 30% clay, as well as some quartz, carbonates, feldspar, and, this is key, organic matter. Shale is often called mud rock because it's made from mud, or tight rock because shale is so impermeable. Shale is laminated, and it tends to split along the layers. So shale may contain up to 36% total organic carbon, which is formed from mostly plant debris that accumulated with the sediments. The darker the color, the more organic rich the rock is. 
So organic-rich shale formations were deposited where there was little or no oxygen in the water, and this preserved the material from decaying. You add heat and pressure and millions and millions of years, and this transforms the material into oil and methane or natural gas. Shale rock layers may be one or two miles below the surface. The amount of natural gas liquids versus oil in the shale rock varies considerably. Weld County is known for containing mostly oil. People have known about shell reserves for a long time, but few people thought it was possible to get large quantities of oil or natural gas out. Let's look at the history of how they came about drilling shale. In a conventional well, the oil or natural gas migrates out of the shale on its own. It kind of migrates upward until it gets trapped by an overlying rock layer, such as sandstone. These fluids flow out easily when they're drilled, so they are referred to as conventional drilling. Unconventional wells, or a fracking well, is what ushered in the shale revolution. This accesses the oil and natural gas bound in those impermeable shale rock layers. Two innovations made these unconventional wells possible. The ability to turn a drill bit so you're horizontally drilling, and hydraulic fracturing, which means injecting very high pressures of fluids to introduce fracture lines into that shale. This allows the gas or oil to flow out to the wellhead. The fluid, and we'll get to that in the environmental piece, is mostly water, but it also contains sand particles to keep those fracture lines open. It also contains biocides, acids, surfactants, and gel stabilizers. So there's several steps to drilling. You have the drilling of the well, you have the hydraulic fracturing, and then you have the flowback where all of the liquids come up. Unconventional drilling has freed up massive oil and gas reserves in shale formations that were once considered much too difficult to access. Years ago, these shale reserves were discovered in the late 1940s, and the Department of Energy had researched hydraulic fracturing of shale in the 1970s, but nobody considered doing this commercially until George Mitchell, who was the owner of Mitchell Energy, tried to do that in the Barnett Shale. The Barnett Shale is thousands of square miles that is located near Fort Worth, Texas. Oil and gas companies had been very successful in drilling above and below that shale. But George Mitchell decided to give that shale rock a try. He was not successful at first, but after years of trial and error, and changing the types of fluids he used, mostly to change the viscosity or the flow rate and the pump pressures, they were able to get the shale to fracture and produce some natural gas in 1997. By 2001, George Mitchell had sold his company to Devon Energy and became one of the first fracking billionaires. David Jurgen, an oil analyst and historian, calls Mitchell's fracking technique the most important and biggest energy innovation of the century. Still, most of the large companies, including ExxonMobil, did not yet believe that that was going to be a practical or even commercializable way to access reserves. Another company, Enron Oil and Gas, EOG, took the lead for hydraulic fracturing in the Bakken Formation in North Dakota. And by year 2000, North Dakota ranked ninth among oil-producing states. And by 2012, it became the second largest energy-producing state in the nation, from that formation. But the Bakken formation in which EOG had drilled and fracked contained a lot of siltstone, not shale. And siltstone is a lot more permeable than shale is. 
So the accepted wisdom was still that, nope, shale's different, it's more impermeable, and oil molecules are too large to flow through shale quickly enough to make any of this fracking worth it. On the heels of Mitchell Energy, EOG began applying horizontal drilling techniques in the Barnett Shale, back in Texas. And this was the first major natural gas field developed in shale reservoir rock. There was a lot of money made at first, but the problem is that after a brief period of being profitable, the flood of gas that the industry unleashed on the market meant that prices fell, such that fracturing natural gas was not going to work for business. It's the classic supply and demand problem. Leaders in the shale business realized that natural gas prices were going to be low for several decades, and that in order to stay viable, oil would need to be produced from the shale wells. It takes far less effort and expense to get natural gas to flow through fractured rock than it does to get oil to do so. But still, oil has benefits that gas does not have. Oil has the benefit of being relatively easy to ship around the world. Natural gas is not as easily shipped. Natural gas requires liquefaction plants in order to condense it into liquid form. And then you have to regasify it by turning LNG back into the gas. And that starts getting expensive. With this incentive, EOG was still working in the Barnett Shale. And in 2007, their unconventional wells began to produce oil. This was a technological success and proved to many, many naysayers in academia and in the industry that yes, shale could be fractured and produce oil as well as gas. Many fortunes were made. Executives were paid well, and so were many people who had mineral rights to their land. One local example is Jeff Hildebrand, who founded Hill Corp Resources and sold it to Marathon Oil in 2011 for $3.5 billion. Hildebrand then bought the 1,000-acre ranch in Aspen that used to belong to John Denver. But there's a huge catch financially. The unconventional fracking well differs from traditional oil wells in a significant way, which is what has Wall Street concerned. The unconventional wells decline very rapidly after the first year between 60 and 80 percent. By comparison, a conventional well might decline by only 10 percent a year. In order to maintain production levels, producers must keep drilling. And if the industry needs to grow production levels, which executives need to do and what their pay is based on, then they need to drill even more. For example, the average well in the Bakken Bakken formation declined 69% in the first year and more than 85% in the first three years. You need thousands of unconventional wells to match the production of a few hundred conventional wells. This is why Wall Street investments are so key. Companies have not been able to fund the capital expenditures for new wells using the income or cash flow from existing wells. In Wall Street speak, what does this mean? It means that companies do not have free cash flow. And this is increasingly becoming a concern for investors. This question, how can an industry that doesn't make money, and it's not clear it ever will money be, make money, be changing the world as much as fracking indisputably is? And it's a really interesting conundrum. Um, thus far, the frackers haven't proven that they can produce free cash flow. And I think the big question for the country as we beat our chests about American energy independence is how much oil and gas would we produce if companies had to live within cash flow? That is Bethany McLean speaking about her book on CNBC. The book is titled Saudi America. Thank you.
You're listening to How on Earth, KGNU's science show, The Shale Revolution, Weld County's Golden Goose. I'm Jill Shong. During the Great Recession, the energy business was one of the few areas to show the growth that investors craved. Oil prices were high, and no one expected that they would ever fall again. The boom changed the U.S. economy, not just in oil and gas-producing states, but also states with sand to mine, such as Wisconsin. Remember, sand is used in the fluids to help keep the fractures in the rock open so that the oil and gas can flow through them after they've been fractured. Fracking machinery and drills, all those things were in high demand as well. In her book, she details how David Einhorn, a prominent hedge fund manager, looked at the financial statements of 16 of the largest publicly traded fracking companies and found that between 2006 and 2014, the fracking firms had spent $80 billion more than they had received from selling oil and gas. And this included when oil was at $100 a barrel, and yet none of them generated excess cash flow. In fact, in 2014, when oil was at $100 a barrel for part of the year, the group through, burned through $20 billion that year alone. Why? A key reason for this is the incredibly steep decline rates that fracked oil wells have. So fracking companies, exploration companies, are scored, they're publicly traded companies, by their growth in production, um, not by the amount of cash they're, they're producing. But that's starting to change. There's a rebellion in the investor community, and investors are starting to say, we want to see returns. It doesn't make money for shareholders, and so how long will Wall Street's largesse continue? How long will we start keep funding a money-losing business? And what does it mean if the cash dries up? The returns to Wall Street investors may not have been real, but the oil and gas that have come out of the ground has been very real, as well as the tax revenues that have gone to the county and the state. What has this meant for Weld County? To better understand these numbers, we speak with Paula Noonan. Welcome, Paula Noonan. Thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start with the number of active oil and natural gas wells that exist in Weld County today. This number changes a lot, but what is the latest number? Well, according to the Weld County Oil and Gas Department, right now there are 19,858 wells, which produce about 81 million barrels a year in oil and another 91, roughly 91 million barrels of oil equivalent in natural gas. And currently, there are 3,681 potential wells that have been permitted in the last year and 508 that are in SPUD, meaning they're in the early drilling processes. So Weld County is number 17 in the country overall for oil and gas production. How much tax revenue does Weld County currently receive from the oil and natural gas industry? In 2020, Weld County will receive $224,660,000 in total property tax. Okay. And of that, $146 million, or almost two-thirds, will be from the oil and gas industry. Holy cow. Yeah, I'm running these numbers. That's 65%. Okay, wow. It's a huge number. Just to give you a sense of the trend, in 2016, the total property tax was $153 million. And so today, the oil and gas industry 
is paying almost equivalent to the total property tax in 2016. It's just a huge dollar for the county. And you can see why they would be so uh, supportive of the industry because it is paying for a good deal of its budget. I mean, not all of the budget, or 65% is of the property tax. There are other revenue sources. But when you look at the total, you have oil and gas at almost 40% of their total budget. So it's just a huge number for them. Okay. And and a lot of that is, uh, or most of that growth is not from the ag industry, obviously, or from homes. It's from all that fracking that's been going on in the county since hydraulic fracking became a technology that could produce oil and gas. That's This has just been a revolution for that county. Which companies have the most wells in, in Well County? Which companies are dominant? Well, right now, um, Anadarko... The old name, now it's Occidental, Noble, Noble, and PDC Energy are the big players. But there used to be other big players. They're now in bankruptcy, extraction oil and whiting oil. Which of these companies that are dominant in Wilk County struggle the most with free cash flow? In other words, if, if there are changes in private equity funding, which has been floating this boat for a while, which companies in Weld County would be most impacted by these changes? Well, two are already in bankruptcy, and probably there may be some others that I don't know about. Extraction, oil and gas, which has been a real thorn in the side of everybody who lives along the I-25 corridor between Boulder and Weld County, is in bankruptcy. That's after they paid, I think it was $7 million to their executives to stay on. Um, and Whiting is in bankruptcy. The biggest player that is in big trouble is Occidental Oil and Gas, which bought Anadarko for $55 billion. And unfortunately for its investors, its stock value has gone down from in the high 60s to today, it's $11 a share. So Occidental is carrying this big debt load right now. And it's their operations, of course, are underwater because of COVID and uh, the decline in business activity. The old Anadarko, the current Occidental, is the biggest player in the biggest trouble. I would say Noble was bought by uh, Chevron, and that deal was going to close in October of this year. And Noble was bought for $5 billion. Chevron is, seems to have gotten the better part of that original deal with Anadarko, and Chevron's more stable, obviously. PDC Energy has just put up $150 million what they call a tack-on to get more equity into their business. I would say all of the oil and gas industry, except for the very biggest players, are in trouble. And Occidental, one of the very biggest players, is in trouble. One of the trickiest things about the business model for hydraulic fracturing is that the well is highly productive in the first year, but its production 
goes into a steep decline after this first year. In the second and third year, there's not nearly as much oil and natural gas produced. This is especially true for oil. This is what's tricky about the industry. In order to keep the money flowing, you have to always have that next well because the wells just decline so dramatically in product and productivity. So in order to cover the cash flow from the previous well, you have to be drilling the next well and the next well and the next well. If you're just tuning in, this is How on Earth, KGNU's science show. On the shale revolution, Weld County's Golden Goose, I'm Jill Shaw. Last November, the Denver Post, using numbers from Bloomberg, analyzed the free cash flows for the eight largest publicly traded producers in the Denver-Julesburg Basin. They looked at the past five years through June 30th of 2019. That group included Anadarko Petroleum, now Occidental, Noble, Extraction, PDC, SRC, which is merging with PDC, High Point, Whiting, and Bonanza Creek. As a group, the eight Colorado-focused producers generated $44.6 billion in cash from their operations after covering expenses. But they had spent $71.6 billion on capital expenditures, with much of that going to drill new wells. So the eight largest public producers active in Colorado spent $27 billion more than they made in those last five years. In the article, Blaine Rollins, lead portfolio manager of the 361 Macro Opportunity Fund in Denver states, the bank and debt investors no longer want to throw good money after bad money until they see some light at the end of the tunnel. One purchaser of the high-yield debt has been pension funds, which need to be able to pay retirees. And so they have invested massive amounts of money with hedge funds, which in turn invest in high-yield debt like that of energy firms and the shell companies that they put so much money into. In 2015 and 2016, Saudi Arabia drove down prices by greatly increasing their production. This resulted in many shale oil bankruptcies here. So it's a little bit of mythology and a little bit of truth. People who know Saudi Arabia and recent events have shown this only too painfully and horribly, have cautioned me into it about thinking you can ever understand anything the kingdom is 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 doing from, from, from the outside. But there was this widespread belief that as oil prices started to fall in 2014, Saudi Arabia made what came to be seen as this pivotal decision not to cut production um, because cutting production would have increased prices and thereby um, helped save American frackers. And so people saw it as this concerted effort to put American frackers out of out of business and remove them as a competitive threat from from the oil market. And look, it almost worked. I mean, I think 150 companies um, went went bankrupt during that period. A million barrels of production came offline, and it kind of underscored the um, the, the fragility of this of of this industry. But the industry came roaring back. And Wall Street was there. The interest rates were still low and pension funds needed some place to put their money. This March, in addition to having a global pandemic, Russia also triggered a price war on oil with Saudi Arabia. These together resulted in a big drop of prices. In a September 15th article in Financial Times, it is reported that 36 producers have gone bankrupt since the start of the year, leaving $50 billion worth of debt behind. And that these filings are only going to pick up. 
The oil and gas industry is certainly not going to be allowed to die. The Federal Reserve has backstopped it, and corporate financial filings, Federal Reserve data, and lobbying disclosures show the oil and gas industry in Colorado has received hundreds of millions of dollars since the pandemic struck earlier this year. This has come in the form of federally guaranteed loans, tax breaks, and corporate bond buying programs. The industry is far too important to let die. Nobody knows where the shale industry is going to end up, and it has certainly come back from the dead many times before. But we can all agree that it's very fragile, and it's resting on shaky ground. Investors have been waiting to time when they should divert money to renewables. This might be coming sooner than we had expected before the pandemic. In the latest issue of The Economist, they report that the oil recovery following the demand collapse from the pandemic has been very jittery. Fossil fuel producers are being forced to confront that their businesses are very vulnerable. ExxonMobil was ejected from the Dow Jones Industrial Average, despite having been a member since 1923. Meanwhile, the clean energy stocks are gaining momentum and are up 45% this year. In Colorado, the share of renewable energy in Colorado's generation mix grew from 10% to 25% of electricity produced in 2019. But what does the financial picture for the oil and gas industry mean for Colorado's environment? How is our front-range air quality impacted by the oil and gas industry? What about the water usage and supplies? And what about future cleanup costs for wells? Next week, we will talk about the environmental issues associated with the shale industry and how these intersect with the financial issues that are also rocking this world. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show is produced by myself, Jill Shong, and engineered by Maeve Conran. We thank Paula Noonan from Colorado Watch, the premier platform for tracking Colorado legislation. Comments from Bethany McLean on her book, Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World, were excerpted from television interviews. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional drum music is from Rite of Passage, Kevin McLeod from Creative Commons. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jill Schong.